Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy News is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, well, happy I'm Back North week for me after like 10 weeks down south. Uh, happy, well, or week before Memorial Day. Uh, yeah. The, hope everyone's uh, enjoying the, the spring here. Yeah, now only one of us is in the uh, southern part of the country, which is is a good thing. Glad Dan's back in, in, in the Northeast. I hope everybody else is safe, healthy, well. It seems like a lot of areas are starting to reopen to some extent. Uh, fingers crossed that all of that goes well um, without incident. I know um, the area directly surrounding you know, our beloved Syracuse University and the uh, Central New York region, a lot of that seems to be reopening. We're even talking about some parts of California reopening as well. Um, so yeah, I guess all all good signs. I don't want to get into you know a a, a COVID deep dive, but, but that would be my takeaway at least at the start of the episode. Yeah, it just you know hopefully things continue to trend in the right direction. Obviously in CNY they passed like their seven step or seven facets to reopen. So hopefully uh, things keep on trending positively and we don't have any unfortunate uh, setbacks as we we get towards like kind of like the make or break time for sports getting going in the fall, which it sounds like college football is going to happen, which kind of seems, seems kind of wild considering where we were a couple of weeks ago, but it seems like the powers that be are going to kind of will it to happen, hopefully in a positive manner. Um, and I think Syracuse is probably in the, I mean, assume, assuming CNY is okay. I, I assume Syracuse is probably going to be a part of that. Yeah. I mean, at this point I would assume that I know even, uh, even Gavin Newsom today, the uh, governor of California, he had said that, you know, sports without fans could potentially be back on in June. Uh, that's a good sign for baseball. It's a good sign for basketball. If they don't do um, like a one site thing like Orlando or Vegas. Um, and that's a really good sign for football down the road, obviously. Um, Cause you know, barring any sort of, you know, backsliding um, if you can have, you know, sports without fans now um, it would make sense that you could have them later. Obviously there's the additional challenges that come with, college sports and then being students and not professionals. But in any case, it seems that the ground's being laid for some things to get back to normal, even if not all. Yeah. I think there was a decent like debate to be had, whether it made most sense to have things go forward in the fall without fans or maybe trying to bump things back a little farther in, in hopes to get fans there. But uh, it's not surprising to me. They want to get things going like closer to schedule just so it doesn't interrupt like the entirety of, of, you know, you, you basically have like a cascading effect, which is probably what we'll see in the, NBA and the MLB, if they, you know, start in, if they're able to start in like July, you know, they're not going to be able to start the next season in October, obviously, you'll probably see something pushed to Christmas. So um, that starts to impact multiple seasons versus college football, you know, they'll obviously hope to, to just have like the minimal impact of one year and just kind of deal with those ramifications versus, you know, the, the, the situation where there was being discussed about pushing things to spring, I, I guess you could possibly play spring and then fall, but then it just kind of opens up like, you know, there are definitely issues with that that we, we haven't fully, like, dealt with yet. Hopefully we don't have to deal with them, to be honest. Because as, as fun as it's been to be in perma offseason on the blog, I uh, I wouldn't mind <laughs> talking about some, like, actual games and results and things. That would be good. Yeah. So uh, we're still in the offseason right now, though. Uh, and I did want to talk about the only sports that any of us care about at the moment or have cared about for the last, you know, five weeks. Um, the Last Dance. Uh, the uh, the ten part documentary from ESPN and Netflix uh, officially wrapped up on Sunday night. For those who were watching on Netflix, it wrapped up whenever you're watching today or this week. Um, Dan, did you get to watch episodes nine and ten? I did. I watched last night after I got back from from the Carolinas. Um, really good. I thought the last the last the last four episodes I thought were super strong. Just kind of what we heard going in, it got you know that it was going to get better as we went, and I think that was that was the case. Yeah, I really enjoyed, I actually enjoyed a lot of the early stuff too. And like, not that I didn't know any of it, but it was just good to get um, some of that, you know, like good backstory and, and, and like tone setting. I actually didn't like, it's not like I hated the last episode, but I didn't love it as much if only because I felt like the um, the going forward and back in time element was such a core part of the first nine episodes. And then to have the timelines merged in, in the 10th, I did feel like I lost a little bit of like, what made it such like an entertaining watch to that point. Um, it didn't make it bad by any means. I just felt like uh, I, 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 it was a bummer. I understood why, obviously, from a narrative standpoint, but I, it, it was a bummer to see that element disappear. Um, also, it was great to, did we, 
did anyone know the the whole flu game story before? Because I, I, I like I hadn't Googled to see, but I I hadn't heard that before. I listened to to, to Bill Simmons just say he and Ryan Russell were doing their breakdowns after every episode, along with every other sports media podcast. Um, uh, it sounds like that was out there that it was flu that was food poisoning but not the flu but like people just kind of assumed like oh you know something incidental happened whether it was the flu or food poisoning i don't i definitely hadn't heard the you know vaguely conspiratorial thing of like did this utah pizza parlor poison him that's just so absurd but also like given some of the like stuff with the jazz like and the whole thing about how uh i forget if it was episode nine or ten but like people during i think the 97 finals were basically saying yeah we're not we don't want to bring our family to these games against utah and even like we've seen stuff, the Russell Westbrook stuff this year um, or last year, whatever that was. Um, yeah, jazz fans are uh, are something. But uh, I, I don't know. Which is weird because when I was at it, like I went to a jazz game a few years ago and like I didn't see any of that. But then again, like I was also there as some like it was a Lakers game. The Lakers sucked at the time and I was rooting for the jazz. <laughs> so I'm sure that like that was part of what colored my experience. Yeah, that's I mean, it, and obviously like not every you know, a fan base that have issues, obviously it doesn't come up like every game. Like, you know, there's always right. like the stuff with Boston teams and, you know, most of the fun, most fans are good. And most of the time everything's fine, but you know, just like stuff happens incident, like there are incidents every so often with, with, you know, so many fan bases. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I'm rude, if I'm like hoping that it was actually that just cause it's so insane. Obviously like there weren't further ramifications from it. Um, but definitely colors things differently. I mean, and, you know, it's all the same for, like, what Jordan played through. I, I don't know. I heard some people suggesting it's, like, less cool that it wasn't the flu. I'm like, eh, I mean, playing through food poisoning is pretty brutal. Like, I'm sure we've all had, like, some bad of food poisoning. It's not fun. Like, just imagine playing hungover. That sounds miserable. Yeah. I saw other people suggesting he was just hungover. <laughs> I'm like, I can't imagine Michael. Like, obviously, Michael Jordan, like, enjoys his, like, tequila and stuff. But I, he was so he was so competitive. I can't imagine him doing that the night before a game, like, in a finals game. Yeah, he, him being as sadistically competitive as he was, I don't see that uh, being the case. I also really much, I really appreciate Jordan uh, giving us the uh, the pizza meme that we now get to use. And, and I know that, uh, I don't know if it was Kevin or, or James that was running the uh, noons feed at the time, but uh, one of them got up a, a Marek Dolajai nod to the, uh, to the uh, nobody else eats the pizza um image so, I, that's so, good. so i definitely so i definitely appreciate them manning the uh manning the, the twitter feed in real time all i know is next time we have a tournament game in utah um which i feel like we were there semi-recently right we had salt lake we were in salt lake once was that 2012 we we uh, no nah, we were there for the baylor game actually was that in salt lake yeah i knew it was recent yeah, was um weird. yeah so next time I we're thought in- about going Net somewhere in Salt Lake, no one's. I'm sorry, Morak, you're not allowed to eat pizza. Like, just can't happen. <laughs> uh, the, we also can't rule out that just Utah pizza is that bad. I mean, I never bought. Like, I did. I've been there. I've been to Utah twice, and I didn't bother with. No, actually, I did have pizza there once. I mean, it was just it was fine. Like, it wasn't. It wasn't any worse than most of the pizza I get here, which is not great. Yeah. Uh, coming from from two months in the Carolinas, I think I've had pizza twice since I've been back. <laughs> Dude, honestly, that's what I have for ha- half my meals. Half my just, meals are pizza, and half my meals are bagels when I go to New York. I just realized. Yeah, my parents had pizza for me when I got up to Connecticut, and like I'm from like directly between New York and New Haven, so you know, pizza is good here, there. Also here in the shore. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't recommend if we have games in the Carolinas either. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, def- I mean, Greensboro, I, I, I didn't have my one minute in Greensboro. I didn't have any pizza. I just know in the deep of my soul, the pizza in Green- Greensboro is awful. Um, South Carolina. <laughs> it's, As a I, rule. Yeah, no, just definitely. In, in Columbia, like the, the one apparently pretty good pizza place we didn't get to go to because their hours were you know, obviously like shop you know, pretty bad. Um, the pizza we did have, not very good. Um, so, yeah, I think just generally, uh, you know, uh, pizza in most parts of the country, just like, eh, you could probably do without. Uh, but apparently Salt Lake, you just don't want to have it because uh, if you find arrival fans with like five delivery drivers going out to ensure the delivery, uh, just just maybe sit that one out. I mean, I it is weird that they had that anecdote and then like he's like, I felt weird about it, but then you gave it to him anyway. That's true. Yeah, the five delivery drivers is definitely suspect. Although I guess 
if the word is out that Jordan is the recipient, which Chase, like, maybe get better, maybe do this better than, like, allowing the pizza place to know who it's for. Um, although, I guess, like, maybe they knew the hotel had the bulls or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, it's very, very strange. Although, I, I appreciate any, like, crazy story like that, especially from, like, 90s, early 2000s NBA. I feel like it's rife with them. That's fair. Yeah, so I guess, like, talking about the last dance, you know, for Syracuse, Dan, are, are are there certain moments like that that you think in Syracuse sports history that could warrant a a ten part documentary like this? I mean, two thousand three title is the obvious one, but even then, like I don't know how much there is left to necessarily uncover about that. I mean, maybe there is. Maybe, maybe there's enough to fill a ten part documentary that, like you know, not just Syracuse fans would find fascinating. Like, what what are some moments or, or just storylines that you feel like could warrant this sort of like? treatment that that would be entertaining and, and, and actually like worthwhile for fans to watch the first team that jumped out to me is 2012 um really good team obviously had a, a run to the elite eight you have dion who just obviously <laughs> you want that dion involved fab mellow which obviously would kind of take a un- unfortunate overtones now um but you know obviously had his whole academic standal which would be really interesting to see peeled back um Obviously, just the team being, you know, winning 30 plus games, being a number one seed. Um, it would just be a really good team to see is uh, just in general, seeing how Bayheim coped with it. A lot of really interesting personalities, Stoop, um, by just like it's a really interesting group of people. Um, so I think that's the one that really jumped out to me. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I think it's hard with that one because it didn't end where it should have, maybe. I would say. The 2016 team is an obvious one, um, if only because it has so many of those like dramatic highs and lows. There's the like you know comeback. There's the hero's journey stuff. There's you know the 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 absence for Bayheim during the regular season. Obviously, um, you know the the, the chance happens. The, the chance happening that Michigan State gets knocked out. The comeback against Virginia, like, and then making the Final Four, which like even though they didn't win at all, I think becomes like this you know, pinnacle um, that, that you can kind of point to. I think that's a fun one. Um, 87 football season's a fun one. Um, I think I'd have to do a little more digging. Um, but, like, there's a couple of lacrosse teams I'm sure you could point to um, that would deserve this sort of treatment. I mean, some of the best lacrosse teams ever have, have been Syracuse squads that you could point to, ones that went unbeaten, ones that just ran through everybody en route to a championship. Like, teams like that um, – and this kind of gets into the underdogs discussion that we'll talk about later on in the podcast. But, you know, like even like the Roy's runs team, I think is another one that, that, that has some entertainment value there. Um, I think really uh, for better or for worse that the, uh, the, the, the Syracuse thing that really deserved this treatment um, probably got it already. And, and that was the, uh, the Requiem for the big East uh, 30 for 30. Um, that kind of, I mean, d- different different filmmaker and all, but but definitely followed a lot of the same kind of beats, and and I felt like was similarly well made. Um, I, that was one that I felt like wasn't that like it was that was at least two hours, um, and and that was something that like I felt like all of us enjoyed, but I think all of us also could have watched it for another five or six hours, and I think there still would have been plenty of turns left to uh, those stones left to overturn. Yeah, the Requiem for the Biggest is great, and it was it was great that Syracuse was so Syracuse focused, and it was also hilarious how little UConn was involved, um, given their success in the Big East. Um, but like, I definitely could have used like an instant, a statue of that because it was so, you know, it was basically like a, a Syracuse Georgetown '80s documentary with like some other stuff around it, but that was kind of the central, the central rivalry of that whole thing, which I appreciated. Um, but definitely could have used more '90s into like the the, the breakup of it uh, than we got. Because it was it was really kind of narrowly focused on on us in Georgetown more than anyone else. Yeah, I mean the breakup thing too. Like that was such a footnote in the in like how that um, that documentary came together. Where I felt like that was really like the last like you know thirty twenty to thirty minutes. They really kind of get into that. They had that really cool like kind of graphic about how the league's membership kept changing. And like to me, like that's some stuff in the margins that that I think you could have done some really great work on obviously you know there's the initial um there's the initial expansion in the 80s then there's the expansion to football members in the night to just football in the 90s and sponsoring football in the 90s then there's the you know initial raid 
um, in the early 2000s. And then you obviously have, um, you know, the departures from 2012 to, well, 2013 through 2014. Like there's enough story beats in there where you probably could have done, you know, four hours and they would have been completely different. Well, at least four hours. They would have been completely different documentaries um, about completely different aspects of a league that, that by its end had just not even resembled what it, what it was initially. Um, I, I mean, really you could have a fifth chapter even about like what it has become since, um, you know, obviously like Georgetown was kind of a, it's kind of a guiding force to, to the, you know, Catholic seven leaving, um, the formation of committees, rules, um, expansion, all that once they left. Uh, and then it's funny now that you look at it and it, while, while Butler and, and, and Creighton and, and, and all them have, have done well. Providence, Seton Hall have found themselves in success. Um, obviously, it's become Villanova's league um, by and large. So I, I think that that would actually be like a, a fascinating way to, to maybe relook at that story um, well, w- w- with a much tighter focus on certain story beats. Yeah, that's an, I mean, it's an interesting way to parlay in the news this week with uh, Georgetown just getting kind of shredded. Um, you know, they're down what, like, half a dozen if not more players from last season um they're kind of going into like a second rebuild in just a couple years under ewing uh it's really into like pretty cool (laughs) it's pretty great love it um it's just interesting that like the catholic seven thing should have just been so good for them and like you know that's that was kind of the painting for all those and as you said like almost all those programs have had some level of success in that villanova's obviously thrived Providence has been really good. Seton Hall has been really good, um, better than they were under the last the last like formation of the Big East. And meanwhile, Georgetown's just really struggled. They should have this big brand. They they've rebuilt their facilities. They have you know they've recruited pretty well overall. Those guys just keep on leaving. Um, and now like after you know moving on from from JT three to Ewing, and neither one has seemed to be able to to figure things out. It's just like. It's fascinating what some of these schools have done to have this like smaller, more centralized basketball-focused conference really work out for them, and how Georgetown hasn't taken advantage. And then it'll be interesting to see how UConn brings a whole other dynamic because they're kind of hoping, you know, they they're very sold on this jump-starting their program. But as we've seen, like it could, but it's no guarantee. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, it's really interesting league overall. But but uh, just what's happened to our rivals. Um, outside of no, I mean, Nova's now like one of the premier programs of the country, and some others have just completely fallen off. And there's, it's just no, I don't know. That's why I think it's really funny that UConn uh, fans have sold, and I, I get it from their point, just like it brings about the rivalries. Of, you know, they'll feel good about it. But what happens in two years if they still haven't made a tournament and they're just kind of floundering? That you can't, you can't just pin everything on the AAC. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, realistically, I think a lot of their problems get solved by, you know, refocusing the talent base and and where they get exposure on new york city and the surrounding areas but at the same time you know like you and i were talking about last week or two weeks ago one of those um college basketball has just changed a lot and you know you you can't necessarily just bank on the new york city kids working out the way you could 20 years ago you can't just bank on you know a certain portion of the country like uconn at the end of the day is going to be largely focused on you know the the immediate area to Connecticut, New England, and the like, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, to maybe DC corridor. And like, that's really it. Um, that's, that's fine. A lot of schools thrive on, on similarly defined areas, but I do think that the, the talent base has probably has expanded a lot further beyond that group um, at this point. And I am curious, like what they and, and everyone, us included, that, that rely heavily on Northeast uh, talent, like what, what happens if, if you can't um, push yourself more nationally? And with the Big East, like there's some opportunity there because of how far flung the conference is. But at the same time, like, you know, like Creighton's really not like Creighton's not like a huge, huge factor uh, in like, you know, what happens in Nebraska. And like DePaul's not really a huge factor in what happens in Chicago. And like Xavier is present in, in, in Cincinnati and Butler's present in Indianapolis, but like, to what extent, like, I, I, I think that, you know, despite us not being involved in the conference anymore, I think it's a fascinating look um, at, at where college basketball goes just by looking at that league alone. You can probably um, tease out a lot of like stories that a lot of, you know, powers, both current and past should be concerned with. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I, I get like the thinking because, 
the AAC, while like a pretty quality, you know, group of five league in a lot of ways, um, is so just decentralized and just kind of far flung. And that works a lot better when you are a, you know, a Tulsa or something than a UConn, which has very specific goals. Um, but not to not to wor- worry too much about what's going on with them. Uh, it just just been very, very interesting. But uh, the Requiem for the Big East thing just, just made me think of it just because you know, Georgetown, you kind of trended in such similar directions in the last couple of years, despite being in completely different situations. And it's, it's pretty fascinating given they are our two biggest historical rivals. Yeah. And in the meantime, we've made two final fours in that stretch. So yeah, and people are still mad, which I get, but <laughs> it's just like, I also I don't get, care. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's funny. Cause like, you know, none of us are like super thrilled with the, the state of things in terms of just like the, the crazy fluctuations, but even in like a pretty frustrating era, we've made two final fours um, amid like people's concerns about the program. Meanwhile, like, you know, the first time UConn makes uh, the tournament in the Big East, they're going to be throwing like a parade through stores. So many cows. It's a little time. <laughs> just, you're, you're right. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been to UConn's campus. So uh, multiple times. It's no, uh, I'm sure <laughs> it's uh, it's a place. It's up, it's up there. <laughs> one time uh before uh in 2012 i was going with a, a friend of mine and we were driving to yukon and staying with some friends there um for the the last syracuse yukon game um i think it was yeah it was the last year before no it was a year before we left for the acc so like it was our i think it was our last game at gamble that they were playing at gamble instead of hartford which was nice um and as we drove through like the windy one highway that gets to stores and it's not, it's not I-95 or the Merritt or any of the, the bigger highways in Connecticut, I-91. Um, we were like basically driving through like the woods and my friend was just like, you have to be kidding me that we are like almost at a major state school and we're driving through like windy two lane roads uh, through like basically a forest. Yeah. From what I recall that, uh, that sounds correct. The only, time uh, I, the only time I went, I drove from Long Island, so it was. That's a, but it was it was probably some of the other. Yeah, like you would think it would be closer, but because there's no like bridge or anything. Just getting from Long Island to Connecticut is a pain. Yeah, and it's I, so close I, and yet so far. Well, I lived in the middle of the island too, so like it was a good forty-five minutes just to get like over to like White Plains-ish area, and then you're like driving up from there. Yeah, you could have taken the ferry to to Bridgeport and would have been. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before we get to halftime did just want to uh, talk about the underdog stuff quick um, for those who've not been paying attention can't blame you uh, SB Nation is doing underdogs week just highlighting underdog teams players coaches whatever um, in each respective schools and, and or teams history um, a couple that we wanted to focus on uh, the 2016 uh, final four squad for men's basketball um, Really, the 2016 women's basketball team too. That was uh, a day. They, that, that was squad. such a fun. That was such a fun dual run. It was honestly like like I don't think people talk about that run enough for the SU team for for the women's team because like while random runs happen all the time in, in men's basketball, they don't happen that much in women's basketball, especially like in the last ten years where it's really been pretty chalky. Um, in terms of Final Fours, it's been the same, you know, seven to eight programs that have really been lorded over, um, you know, the proceedings for the most part. And to have like, you know, a couple of breakthrough performances, like didn't Oregon State make it or was it Washington that also made the Final uh, Four that year? I think it was Washington. Yeah, I think that that was who we beat beforehand, I think. Um, but yeah, like it, it, it was just it was interesting to have like not only Syracuse, but I believe Washington um, kind of breakthrough. And, you know, I I think as much as we haven't seen like Syracuse get to that point again since, I think it helped propel SU um, women's basketball recruiting um, to much higher stratosphere. And hopefully we see those dividends on the court soon. Yeah, it it was a, it was a cool like culmination since like the last, the couple of years before that SU had like really good teams and they'd like hit just a snag in the tournament um, or able to have like a key injury late or something. So it was really nice to see them. It, it kind of like ver- like validated everything that that Coach G had done the the couple years before that. And obviously we're trying to return to that point. And 
you know, we got really unlucky with the Tiana injury last year, or not injury, uh, t- diagnosis last year. Um, but it, 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 it seemed to be like, uh, okay, this is like actually heading, it, you know, it, they've kind of validated everything that had happened before that, where people were kind of frustrated that we weren't taking that next big step. Um, and that was like just a leap from where people even thought we would get that year. So, uh, and then to be kind of intermingled with the 2016 men's final four run and happening like, you know, back-to-back days between games and stuff. It was, a uh, one of the more fun times to be a, an SU fan, especially like in New York, people down, going to bars for both games, just like, it just seemed, seemed like people were flying really, really high. Um, and obviously the women's team was like uh, on paper, a much better team that year than the men's team. But, uh, and, and, you know, we're less, less surprising, I guess, um, in that way, since the men's team, no one expected to make that kind of run, but just having them both go at the same time, it really felt like Syracuse was like, just, just completely on the map. Um, and just, you know, kind of dominating everything that whole time until obviously the UNC game. But the other fun part was like, with just how, how both of those teams lost that year, like they just played such good teams. It, it also was kind of hard to be super too, too bummed out with how the, the finishes were even, you know, against the UConn women, it, it seems it's a rival, but that's such a juggernaut that, you know, what can you do? Yeah. I, I, I mean, we, we've seen this happen a couple of times now to Syracuse where they've just, because of the regional shifts and, and how this works, where they've, they've been forced to play UConn sometimes earlier than, than we wanted them to. Um, I looked it up. We actually, Oregon State and Washington made the final four that year. So oh, we, uh, good, good recall. I knew Washington was involved because we played them, right? And then Oregon State played yeah, we, Washington was actually an even bigger underdog. Washington was a seven seed. Yes, I do remember this. And yeah, we, we smoked them in the, uh, in the semifinal 80 to 59. UConn beat Oregon State 80 to 51 and then beat us 82 to 51. That score doesn't tell the whole story, though. I honestly like th- there was a time in there where like Syracuse was on the cusp of like narrowing that game. And then it just didn't happen. But, you know, th- th- that was a great SU team. And, and like, you look, too, at, at, at just how the bracket just seemed to break the right way for, for SU. Um, you know, being able to beat South Carolina, for one, amazing. In fact, the Tennessee upset, upset Ohio State was, was amazing. Um, having the upset, too, uh, that, you know, got Washington into the Final Four, giving us a little bit easier of a game. Uh, before the you know title game, like another great like bit of happenstance, but it was a good SU team, and honestly, an SU team that that again uh, pressed UConn um, a little bit more than most had in recent seasons. Yeah, it's also I think good for good for that sport as well to try to open things up to more teams. Obviously, Syracuse is part of that, but uh, just overall, like hopefully we see more of that and less of like just the the continued cycle of the same few teams. So we talked about the same thing with like lacrosse obviously that that's one of the ones where like Syracuse not being on top is you know bothers people a lot and obviously as fans we want to see our team did every year but I think overall for the health of the sport um I'd be interested to hear if UConn fan women's fans agree but like you'd rather be like the best team or one of the best teams in a sport where there are a lot of competitive teams and like it's it's less of a foregone conclusion than just to dominate you know a sport that only a handful of people care about I've always felt that for the lacrosse team at least yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I'm curious. I think it goes both ways. I think there's like, it's one of those things where like fans want, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's how like fans want those upsets in the early rounds of the NCAA tournament, but then they don't want to see them pass the Sweet 16 where like pe- people love the idea of parody. And then once they get it, they're like annoyed. <laughs> like the end of the day, the Blue Bloods and, and having that upper crust is really what's going to move. Um is like move people to watch and encourage people to watch. I mean, at the end of the day, while like you and I are big NBA fans and, and we'll watch whoever's in the finals, the, the, the most watched finals are going to be the ones between the Celtics and the Lakers, despite the fact that, you know, there are bigger fan bases than at least one of those teams. Um, there's plenty of people that hate both of those teams. Um, and like, the you know, parody has like, at least in some ways, shape or form, taken hold a little bit in the NBA um, to some extent. But like people really do want to see those top seeds and those top, uh, you know, teams make it year in and year out. And that's how they feel like, you know, they're watching something you know, normal, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's definitely true for, for college basketball, too. Like, I feel like just working in it, like in terms of the NCAA tournament, you want the upsets the first weekend. And then after that, you kind of want to root uh, those teams out. Obviously, like Loyola, uh, Loyola was a good story a couple of years ago, 
but generally speaking, you want like upsets first couple rounds, and then you want the cream to rise uh, once you hit like the second weekend, and then you want like a, a blue blood filled final four. Um, but I think like if you're talking about the long game, just seeing like more teams developing into those programs that people want to see at the end of the tournament versus just like a rash of like you know good stories, but then you know they flame out and get beat by twenty in the elite eight. Um, I think it's like kind of a delicate balance. Yeah, I'd agree there. Um, you know what? I think we I think we touched on the underdog stuff enough. I feel like I'm going to write about it plenty this week anyway. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about beard, Dan? Cool. Um, I haven't had less, any of the last couple days since I've spent most of my life driving. Uh, but before I left Carolina, um, had some more local stuff down there. Had uh, from Steel Hands Brewing, which is I think probably the the best Columbia area brewery had uh, two kind of interesting ones from them. Uh, Habanero uh, Adave Tequila Lager, which was very interesting. Um, not overly spicy, but a really nice, interesting blend of flavors. And then what I thought was really good, um, a lime golden ale from them as well. Super refreshing. Uh, and then I also had a sour apricot peach from Edmund's Oast. Um, so I actually grabbed some, I had a, a couple Different types of half full from Stanford delivered to my parents, which I picked up and brought down here. And then uh, I might look into delivery from from uh, Carton because it does look like they hit the uh, they go far enough south to hit my my house down here. So hopefully I'll be getting some some more northeastern than some some to Jersey beer over the next couple of weeks while I'm staying down the shore, which is you know not sure how long I'll be here, but probably at least a couple of weeks. Very nice. Um, on my end, I had another bottle, the other bottle of Confuzzled I had from uh, Celador. It's a wild ale with a pineapple, mango, and some other things. Had a then again farmhouse ale from uh, Santa Darius. Had um, Beachwood down in Long Beach started making um, hard seltzer. So I had their uh, physical pog and that was really, really good. And I have more of that six pack in my fridge for this coming weekend. Also had their Alpha Neo IPA. Uh, it was really good. Kind of had like some pina colada vibes. Uh, West Coast IPA, really uh, tropical, crisp. Definitely enjoy that one. Had the uh, last bottle of uh, Family Farmhouse Ale from Celador. And that was it for me for the weekend. Um, it was great to get some Beachwood stuff. A friend of mine uh, lives close to the brewery down in Long Beach. And they only were doing like hyper-local deliveries. Um, so I had some stuff sent to her. Um, and uh, my wife and I kind of... Visited with our kid. They have a kid who's like two months old. So we uh, we sat, you know, like 10 feet apart on their front lawn and just uh, enjoyed some drinks, relaxed. And uh, it's nice to just, you know, not feel completely normal, but at least get out a little bit for, for a day and, and still maintain some uh, some safe distance. Yeah, I think it's good to see people like 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 that, just like not doing anything that's going to put anyone at risk, but also getting some uh, just in the same general area and be able to talk to people in person. I think it is important to try to do that at least some, some capacity. And to, I was lucky down South to be with, you know, four other people in the house, but um, I can't imagine people who are kind of writing this out alone or even with like one other person. So that'd be really tough. So, you know, hopefully people are able to see some friends uh, in a safe and uh, just non super overexposed way. Yeah. If you are, if you are solo, please try to, to interact with people if you can, even if it's just on video or whatever. Um, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm a little antisocial sometimes and, and I do think there's still a, a level of sanity that, that you're, you're, you're best served to try to maintain if you can. Yeah. You got to balance things. Obviously like, you know, everyone, you know, I assume most people are taking it seriously and like understand the severity of it, but I, I also don't think it's great to, uh, to do it. So to a level where like, you're not seeing anyone else. You're just driving yourself crazy. I think you, you have to kind of eject some human interaction, even if it is only like video calls or whatever. I think that's better than nothing. For sure. So I guess on the conversation front, Dan, for the second half here, um, see how long this goes. Did want to talk a little bit about uh, Syracuse football recruiting. Uh, I know I wrote an article on Friday kind of breaking down, you know, who are the top targets, uh, folks that we're kind of in on for the most part. We have a good chance of landing. Uh, we already got an update on one of those names today. Um, Riley Leonard, the uh, Fairhope Alabama uh, pro-style quarterback, uh, he had offers. He's not rated, but most of that's just because of the state of recruiting this year um, without in-person events and things like that. Uh, he was unrated, but probably going to be a three-star. Um, had offers from us, Nebraska, Vandy, Duke, among others. Um, it seemed like he was between like us, Vandy, and Duke. 
He, despite Syracuse putting him as number one on their board, according to him, uh, he picked Duke. Now, that's not necessarily like this damning thing for the program or SU or anything like that. Um, you know, David Cutcliffe has a long history of, of getting players uh, to the NFL. Obviously, you know, the Manning brothers, uh, Daniel Jones, others, like he, he's done great work there. And, and even though um, Sterling Gilbert and uh, Dino Babers have uh, Jimmy Garoppolo to claim, it's still not that that uh, that legacy just yet. Um, but yeah, bummer to lose out on uh, Riley Leonard. I, I think more importantly, though, Dan, like, do you have a greater concern about about the this staff's ability to recruit quarterbacks now that we're kind of like on the it looks like it's going to be the fourth straight cycle that uh, the things aren't going to go as planned. It's, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I almost called it a concern. It's just strange. Like it, it feels like after Dungy was so productive here and uh, obviously Tommy DeVito, you know, hasn't quite hit his stride yet, but, you know, it was a four-star kid. But Slep walked into, like, one of the better passing seasons in Syracuse history it's, anyway. Right. And, like, should be able to sold, like, hey, we didn't even get him, like, fully up to speed yet. And look what he was able to do, you know, playing banged up with a really, um, you know, offensive line that was really bad for at least half the season and starting to get better. Like, there was just a lot, like, you feel like you, you should be able to, like, spin that and, and figure it out. And obviously, part of it's just, like, this recruiting situation's just very strange and... uh it's just, I don't know, it's a little bit uh, perturbing. I also, I think, maybe slightly less so, if only because the way that transfers work right now, there are always quarterbacks available. So I think it's just, you know, you do, you don't want to strike out constantly because, like, you know, Tommy got banged up last year. We saw we had to we had to go to the to the bullpen a little bit. Um, you want to have good quality backups there, and you want to try to develop people from the ground up. But there are more quarterbacks available now than there ever were before, and, like, guys who are generally more plug-and-play. And we've seen, like, Bay system, obviously, it takes a little while for people to get, you know, fully rolling. But we saw Dungy playing well in it pretty quickly. Um, DeVito, you know, last year in, in spots in his first real meaningful time. So, um, yeah, I think it's, like, a, a definitely a concern. I'm not gonna, I don't think it's anything, like, worth freaking out or questioning the direction of the program over. But you do want to see the, the team uh, land some of these guys obviously he wasn't the only guy on our board um you named Taj Bullock uh so we'll see you know where that goes um now that Leonard who was allegedly you know or reportedly at least the number one guy on our on our board is is off of it um you did on the list a little bit and there's there's plenty of recruiting to be done but it is it is you know just just strange that it hasn't even if it's not like you know getting four-star kids like DeVito who blow up at Elite 11 every year you, you'd like to see them landing their targets and beating out dukes and what and whatnots you know here and there for guys um that being said i think for the rest of the class like things are starting to shape up and as you said with leonard like you could say the same thing about uh, a jalen moss or Derek mcdonald like most of the time when these guys are unrated it isn't because they're like not worthy of a two-star that's kind of the general floor it's just that a lot of these services will only rank after they've seen kids at camp or they've seen kids in person and that's obviously just not possible right now so you're seeing a lot of guys who just aren't getting evaluated to the same level as where they would be in a normal year so um it wouldn't shock me if a lot of these guys end up jumping up once that kind of comes back into focus if that's possible before they're before the signing day um which who knows because i don't know how many camps are going to be run um when the football season is still a major question especially at some of these high school levels so uh, this is just going to be, I think we're going to be flying, we're going to be on like a 2010 level of information about these recruits uh, for the first <laughs> time in a long time, just because there's just so little to go off of right now. Yeah, I'd agree there. I think at this point, like the people have to trust that these schools are, are, are very, very good at this and, and they've only gotten better year over year. So as much as it's not like an exact science, I would think that if a guy's unrated, but has offers from, you know, Missouri, Syracuse, Vandy, uh, Kentucky, Northwestern, like they're probably a high three-star guy. Yeah, I, even like with, I think the rankings have gotten better over the years. And like, obviously they're not a hundred percent. There are five-star kids who flame out. There are two-star kids who turn into stars. But overall on average, like you have a pretty good idea of where these recruits are. Um, but even in the absence of that, if you see a kid who's getting, you know, if he has a dozen power five offers, like you can kind of translate that into like a high three-star kid. It's just not that hard to to figure. So. Yeah, if the schools are going to have more, are going to be ahead of the recruiting services with all this stuff, they get, um, they talk to the high school coaches, they uh, more, you know, have more direct access at least. Um, they're getting probably more film, workout tapes, 
uh, a lot of times they've camped these kids before, um, even before they were major recruits. So, uh, yeah, you got to try to try to rely on that a little bit. But then also we're involved with some good, good recruits. Obviously, I think the biggest name who has had some press recently is George Rooks. Uh, it'd be very nice to get a, a legacy kid like that, but he's like a pretty solid four star um, with a lot of really big offers. Uh, he's in Jersey City, so he's you know in an area where you want to see Syracuse recruit well, especially um, with Rutgers potentially eating into some more recruiting in their home state with Dreggiano back. Um, so yeah, if you land him, if you, you know, maybe snag one of the other like high three four-star type guys, uh, Josh Moore, maybe who I think is, he's a uh, teammates with McDonald, right? In Atlanta. Yeah. Um, he's uh he's teammates at McDonald. He's the, uh, Moore has a lot of big offers too. Um, I yeah. Know, like you mentioned the rough guys, big ones, but yeah, Moore has got more is like a, a, a a really great student too. I think his top six is like us, Northwestern, Stanford, uh, Boston College, and Notre Dame, and somebody else. Yeah. So like, if you get a couple of those kind of guys, and like, obviously we know we're not going to be pulling in the like half of our guys are blue chippers, and you know, therefore we could you know compete for for the top of the conference year over year. But if we're getting like classes with like two or three four star type kids, and then a lot of just really solid good power five offers across the board kids. Like that's kind of what we're shooting for realistically. So um, it, it, we're involved with a lot of these players. So I think generally the recruiting news has been pretty good. Yeah. I mean, we still haven't had like that, like big, big get, I think, you know, Terry Lockett's obviously kind of been like the the guy carrying the banner so far. Um, I think a lot of the recent ads have actually been pretty good. Um, but you know, you're not like we've been saying, you're not necessarily going to get that big um, like jump for, for, for certain guys that like, oh, like they were a three-star and suddenly they were four, they were unrated and then suddenly, oh, like we evaluated they were four. Like it's going to be hard to have those sort of leaps um, because there's not a whole lot happening to really affect um, recruiting in that fashion. But yeah, if Syracuse can land a guy like Rooks and like soon, I mean, Rival says that he where is number one. So we'll see how that goes. Um, again, if we can land him, if we can land maybe like a guy like Moore. Um, there's a few others on here that like you have to you have to hope we can get. I think everybody I listed on this in this uh, piece are, are folks that like have Syracuse as like in their top group or or guys that you know camped at Syracuse already on Junior Day. Like so, there's a lot of so I think most of these names are the ones that people should be watching out for at least for the time being. Um, and then kind of if we end up striking out on half of them or, or more, which I hope not. Um, then we have, you know, a different conversation to, to, to look at where, you know, okay, like what isn't Syracuse doing and and, and how are we going to, how, if we have to move on from these guys, how are we going to close on another group who might not ever be able to get to campus before committing um, for 2021? Yeah. And that's the other variable which we've talked about a lot. I know we talked about it at length last week, like the recruiting calendars just going to be so thrown because even if like college football comes back, Obviously, it sounds like it'll probably be without fans or with very limited fans in the fall. Like, does, are we going to be able to host big recruiting weekends? I don't know how feasible that is. Um, and that's obviously a huge factor in terms of kids making their decisions, um, getting up to a game, seeing the facilities. Like, maybe we can have a couple kids, but, like, I don't know if we're going to be able to have those, like, oh, we brought this whole junior college team or, like, we brought a group of, like, 20 20 recruits and like those things usually manifest in like kids forming bonds them saying oh let's recruit let's commit here together you know i built a really good relationship with this guy he want i'm gonna be his roommate next year like i just don't know if that's gonna be feasible even if there are games to be played um and yeah especially with like if there aren't fans or is that are those gonna be environments that the schools and the programs feel like they are you know doing their best by bringing kids into that and saying like all right you have to visualize how this would look if there were fans here. Um, maybe they think like it's better than nothing. Maybe they they say no, but it's uh, it's just all it's just gonna be very strange this whole year. I, I have no idea, and I don't think the NCAA really has any idea of like what is gonna be feasible when, um, and it might and and what happens if it if it breaks down to like, you know, region by region, then you're throwing. I mean, Syracuse obviously we were talking about CNY opening up, but like. Syracuse is probably in a more vulnerable position there, especially with kids coming from more affected areas versus in the Southeast or in like the Midwest. Um, are you going to, is that going to drive more inequity if possible in the recruiting landscape where there's already like kind of how the whole thing works to begin with. So 
Um, and well, how will the NCAA react to that? And how will they wave the groundwork for it? So lots of questions to be answered. Um, and uh, who knows like when we'll actually get satisfactory information on all that. Yeah, some really good points there. Um, Dan, before we go, uh, if, if there's one position other than quarterback um, that, that, that you'd like to really see us like kind of convert on here, uh, what would that be? Um, O-line. I think we've, we've done a nice job with the D-line already, and we have some other big prospects there. But offensive line, I think we need to keep on just ra- ramping up the talent level there. And obviously, we took some steps forward last year. We're kind of betting, and we, we both thought Kavanaugh would get replaced. I think we're all kind of betting on like that late season progress translating into like really major step forwards for 2020. Um, but I think you also want to see like a continued growth in the talent level across the board there. So I think we've done a nice job at a lot of other positions running back wide receiver. I think we've recruited quite well and we, we just had a like packed in numbers and like some of those guys are bound to, to produce and uh, you know, hopefully that's still the case. Um, but offensive lines, like where a lot of it's going to start. And that's, I think at the root of a lot of DeVito, issues last year and the offense's issues last year overall and uh, even with like hopefully some progress from the guys on the roster you want to keep pushing them and, and really have like a a good cycle of guys where like okay we have you know two seniors two juniors and a sophomore starting this year and then we know we're going to you know have two seniors you know a junior and two sophomores the next year and not have to worry about like replacing a bunch of starters every year and then not having any idea of like if the dice were stepping in are good, um, which has been an issue for us in years past when we've struggled. So uh, getting that, getting like a nice pipeline of offensive linemen going, uh, which I think we had for a little while, a couple of years ago um, would be good. So I think that's a really major area of concern. Yeah. I think a lack of developed depth is, is a tough thing. I think too, like what was confusing, I think last year for a lot of people, and I know you and I like 2018 featured so many blowouts and so many games that like we had either like the couple games that we lost like one of them, the the Notre Dame game, like we could have put in tons of backups, whatever. Like and there were plenty of games that we won by several touchdowns. Like I would have liked to see a little bit better job done in terms of depth development and and getting younger guys snaps when games are out of hand one way or the other. Um, I don't think we should have had the inexperience that we did necessarily last year. Um, but, you know, the, the younger guys, you know, the Matt Bergeron's of the world, like when, when they got on the field, they actually performed pretty well. Um, so, so I do hope that we start developing talent a little bit better on that front. I, I agree with you. I think Kavanaugh coming back, I think a lot of that ties to, um, you know, the fact that he was able to help SU convert Chris Blake, the, uh, Florida transfer, um, who, if, if he gets the waiver, he'll start at guard. Um, I think really like, you know, Cotier White's a guy who was a four-star, he was a project, but at this point, like. He's somebody who we need to start seeing on a two deep or you start wondering like what the hell's going on. Um, I agree with you. I think offensive line, like there, there's a couple good three-star guys that we're in on, but we're still like, even there, like we're just not, we're not in on those conversations with like these four-star kids and you know, like Kareem Harden. Uh, he's a three-star. He's got some good schools on his list, Pitt, Kansas. Um, Austin Cowie from uh, Honolulu. Where is only P5 offer right now? Like, these kids could very well end up being like pretty good. And I think it's good to have those guys on the roster, but um, if we're going to start targeting, you know, more four stars in a certain place, I would say, you know, maybe look at offensive line as, as, as somewhere where, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that's the place to, to focus your, to focus your energies all the time. But if you have a four star, you know, if you have an offensive line full of four star players, um, you can turn a three star quarterback into a four star quarterback and a four, three star running back into a four star running back um, just by way of, of quality blocking in front of them. I mean, you look at what Syracuse has been able to do when they have good offensive lines. I mean, the results are, are pretty obvious that um, having good blocking is, is going to be just as, if not more important, you know, than having quality skilled players and, and, and the, the, the production will come if you have quality blocking up front. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it so much last year, even with like some growing pains for DeVito and stuff. Like, if we have uh, an ACC, and maybe not last year's ACC average, because the ACC was so bad across the board at offensive line. But if you had like, you know, a power five average offensive line last year, I'm pretty sure we go bowling. So it, it really makes a ton of difference and can really elevate someone at least into like decent performance if they just have that, that kind of, uh, 
ease of knowing that they're not under siege every time they they drop back. So hopefully we make up for it this year and we get like kind of bear the fruit of last year's struggles with like a pretty experienced group this year, but you still don't want to have to be hitting the restart button every three years or so. You want to just keep it rolling. So in recruiting, it's always good. Um, and offensive line is like a place where I think you can get guys kind of off the radar a little bit. You get guys from all different areas. Like you just have to be good at scouting them. So um, we'll see. We've, we've had decent offensive lines in the recent past. Uh, I, I trust our ability to do it again, but uh, obviously we need to, to, to hit the ground running here um, and, and not like waste a, waste a class just because things are difficult because it's kind of across the board right now. Yeah, that, that's a good point there. Like, well, I'm, I know neither of us are ones to really hammer this, uh, the staff ton. Um, and, and the current challenges do kind of give them a little bit more lenience than they would have otherwise, given the circumstances. I do think that, that, yeah, like you said, everybody's dealing with this. Um, and, and, and Syracuse has, you know, an opportunity where while they have some challenges there, there are also chances to, to sell yourself, um, you know, uh, above your fighting weight in, in, in some ways. So uh, I'm hopeful, uh, like I said, I, I think based on the list of kids, you know, in that article I put together, I think if we can convert half or more, like then, then I think this class is actually looking really nice. Yeah, I agree. We'll, we'll see where things go. It's it's like, we don't really have a great idea. Like these guys just kind of commit when they're comfortable. Um, there's not like, you know, you, you don't know that you're going to do a bunch of summers or a bunch of kids waiting until the fall. It's, it's all up in the air right now. So Hopefully, uh, hopefully, it's continue to get some good news. It's been a pretty steady stream over the last few weeks, um, which has been nice. So, hopefully, a couple more, maybe one or two more by the uh, next time we do this. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think this is like the longest drought of uh, of commits we've had in a while. So, yeah, last one was the twelfth, uh, yeah, which was Landon Morris. Yeah, so we at one point we had like I think it was like four or five in like a like fifteen day stretch or something like that. So. Maybe we have more coming. Hopefully, it seems like a lot of these kids are already like kind of down there, like top five or six. And realistically, they're not going to have much of a chance to to add to that list um, without without uh, campus visits and stuff like that. So we shall see. Um, Dan, anything else before we depart today? No, that's it for me. Again, bad lie to be up uh, a little closer to probably where most of our uh, our readers and listeners are. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of keeping things rolling and. Staying healthy, hopefully. <laughs> There's not much more yep. to do. Same. <laughs> Agreed. Glad that you made it back safe. Hope everybody else out there is safe, healthy, and all that. Um, you've been listening to Trend Noons and Absolute Podcast. That was Dan. I'm John. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Megaphone, on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever else you listen to podcasts, and go orange. Go orange.